Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Well, hey, everybody. I'm Zach. As you heard already, Dad stole like half my intro. So um, I have a beautiful wife of 11 years, Nicole, and she and our five-week-old are at home. We don't take her many places these days uh, just yet. And then we have an almost two-year-old, Bellamy, who's here enjoying some time with, with Grumps and Grammy. Uh, like Dad said, I've served as a worship pastor uh, at a church in Monroe, Georgia. Actually, the, the church is called Journey Church. It's in between Georgia, which is called between because it's halfway between Atlanta and Athens. They were very creative with the name of that city. Um, I have a lot of memories from PBC. Many of you have made a tremendous impact on my life, and you don't even know it. <laughs> I told myself I could make it through the first five minutes, I'd be okay, but... <laughs> Um, you guys mean so much to me, and it's so good to see so many familiar faces. It's also very difficult to, to miss so many. Uh, Chris Gould made a tremendous impact on my life. He gave me the chance to serve and to play guitar when most people wouldn't. I had just started to learn how to play guitar when he had asked me to join the praise team. And I thought to myself, well, the only songs I know are Sweet Home Alabama and Magic Carpet Ride. And that's not going to help me in this context whatsoever. <laughs> but he threw me in there. And I, I'm so blessed to have um, spent my teenage years in a church that shows grace and allows people to, um, to learn on the job because that's, uh, that's very hard to find these days. Um, the trend is to find people who are very accomplished and to, to get those people on the platform because they want to present something that is excellent and that is very polished and presentable. And, and I, I certainly feel like that has its place. Um, I want to do everything with excellence that I do for the Lord. Um, Chris taught me that ministry was less about playing music perfectly and more about the people who, <clears throat> sorry, who God has uh, allowed you to lead. And so I, I have put that into place in my life and in my ministry, and I, I value discipleship. I, I value mentoring, um, and it's because of him. Uh, it's funny how memories work, because, uh, especially for me. I only have a handful of memories of my childhood before my family moved to Palmetto for some reason. Last Thanksgiving, I reunited with a friend, Brandon Clark. Brandon and I grew up together. We went to elementary school and middle school and then ninth grade together before my family moved to Palmetto. We were, we were really close. We shared a lot of the same interests. And I had not seen him in, in more than 15 years. And come to find out last Thanksgiving, he and I live about 10 minutes from each other. And so we, we got in touch act over Instagram, funny enough, and um, met up for lunch. And he's just rattling off story after story after story of us when we were kids. And I'm listening to these stories thinking, 
you're talking about somebody else. I, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And, and he's just sharing all of these things that we did together, conversations we had, trouble we got into. And it's like I'm listening to a story about somebody else. Um, but I do remember when my sister was born. That's my earliest memory. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I had, uh, for some reason, I just liked to smell things. That's like, like I wouldn't eat it until I've smelled it. I still do that to an extent. And I remember my family bringing my sister close, and I smelled the top of her head. And they asked me, what does she smell like? And I said, she smells like a peach, which I think had more to do with the fuzz on her head than her actual scent. But that's what I said. She smells like a peach. I remember a birthday party in elementary school where we were on the trampoline and it got a little out of control. I fell, got my head stuck between the springs. That's very vivid in my memory. I remember growing up with my granddaddy teaching me how to pitch. I played baseball growing up. He used to take a five-gallon bucket and he would put it inside of a used tire and then he'd put me about 60 feet away and he'd make me throw baseballs into that bucket. And so the great thing was, if, if you got it right in the center, it would bounce back at you. If you got it in the bucket, but it wasn't in the center, it would at least stay in the bucket so that you could collect the balls and do it all over again. But if you miss that bucket and you hit the tire, it flies off in any, any direction. Or if I completely miss the tire, of course, I've got to walk 20 yards to go get the ball back and he'd make me collect them every time so I figured out quick how to hit my spots I remember uh, the hair salon that my mom used to work at they had a little area up front uh, in the lobby they had a, a small box TV a bunch of magazines with women's hairstyles in them that I thought were super boring and but they had a videotape collection and I would watch Mighty Ducks and thought it was the greatest cinematic experience of my lifetime. I watch it over and over and over again. I grew up and I used to draw a lot. I remember sitting at this big wooden round table in my grandparents' living room and I would just sit there with papers everywhere, pens, colored pencils and everything and I just draw for hours and hours and hours. One time in fourth grade, I got in trouble for something. I don't even remember what it was, but my parents grounded me from drawing. I, I understand how stupid that sounds to you, but I was devastated. I was like, this is, this is the end of the world. What am I going to do? I'm going to be so bored. I had nothing to do. Um, I remember moving to Palmetto, and I was 15, we lived in the pastorium just down the street, and uh, my parents enrolled my sister and I in Arlington Christian School. And while we were at Arlington, I played baseball. I was the starting third baseman for the varsity team at Arlington Christian School. And now before you get too impressed, everyone who tried out made it. It's a very small school, or at least it was back then, okay? We were terrible. We lost every single game that year. <laughs> At the end of the semester, uh, my parents had bought land down on Ridley Road, and we were building a house, and it was going to be ready in time for the next school year, and I was going to be going to Northgate, and so I had a conversation with my coach, and I walk in, and he's working on something, I don't know, he's got papers on his desk, he's writing something, and I just said, hey, I want to let you know that my family's 
moving uh, just a little ways away. We're moving into Coweta County, and I'm going to be going to Northgate next year. And I, I just wanted to make sure you were aware. And, um, and I remember he, he never looked up. He kept writing. He kept writing on his papers. And all he said was, all he said was, well, that's a waste. And I was shocked. I had no idea what to do. So I just turned around and left. It's my last memory of him. It's funny how we do that, isn't it? That negative memories have so much more weight than positive ones do. Uh, psychologists actually have a term for this. It's called the negativity bias. It's been scientifically proven that, that the reason that some people have to work extra hard to ward off depression and the reason why some negative memories seem to just rattle around in our minds for years and years and decades even is because we are hardwired for greater sensitivity to unpleasant news that there are actually more electrical impulses in our brain when we experience a negative, uh, ex when we have a negative experience than when we have a positive experience. This um, study was even conducted on uh, the success and failure of marriages. They took some marriages who were content and thriving and then the other ones who seemed to be in marital misery and they analyzed to see what is the difference between the two. And they found out that it's a healthy balance of negative experiences and positive experiences. What they also found out is that it's not a 50-50 equilibrium like, would, like you would think, but instead has a very specific ratio. And the ratio is five positive experiences to one negative experience. For kids, I'm told it could be even 10 positive experiences to one negative experience to have that equilibrium, to have contentment. And the same applies to aspects of our lives. I mean, some of you may have had parents who weren't necessarily there for you growing up um, or even were sadly in abusive relationships, but you had that one time who your dad, who had not been around for the past 10 years, decides to show up and throw you this huge birthday party. The birthday party's great, but it certainly doesn't outweigh the 10 years of absence, does it? Um, part of my job, actually, as a worship pastor, is to handle social media for my church. And so I've studied... Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and found out that they have these things called algorithms. And uh, basically how it works is uh, you can think of Facebook as sort of a magazine and they want you to read it. And so they keep record of everything that you click on and every video that you view and then they learn what your likes and your dislikes are so that they begin to serve you information that they feel like you are most likely to read. Now here's the kicker, is that negative information is three times more likely to be clicked on than positive information. Talk about a negativity bias right there. 
And you may think, okay, well, what's the big deal in that? The big deal is that if we can increasingly surround ourselves with news and information, both in the real world and online, that only supports our existing worldview, then we become pressured into increasingly, increasingly extreme rhetoric. Things get hostile. Things get ugly. We saw that in the 2016 election. It was one of the most partisan elections our country has ever seen. I'm not taking one side or another. I'm just, we all experienced how divisive that election was. And the 2020 election is most likely to be even more so. I don't, I don't know that it has anything to do with the candidates or not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the negativity bias that is natural inside of our minds combined with the way social media works and the fact that they want to show you information that they have interpreted as important to you is leading people to become more and more divided. I want to read from 1 Samuel chapter 7 with you today. If you have Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible... The words will be on the screen, um, and I'm sure we can also get you in touch with someone so you can take a Bible home. I think it's important that you have one. Before we read from 1 Samuel chapter 7, I want to get us caught up on um, what is happening in the story. So Joshua is the leader of Israel um, in the book of Joshua. He leads the Israelites through the conquest of Canaan, which is the promised land, and uh, after they have conquered Canaan, there's a, a repeating trend that develops. The first, day, the first stage of that trend is apostasy, which is a fancy word for um, people leaving what God has to say and disbelieving God, pursuing other things. The next stage is catastrophe. God would send in usually another army to come in and, and as punishment to the Israelites for having deserted him. Next, they cry out for help. And then God answers by appointing a judge. You may be, have heard of the book of Judges. That's, uh, those are the people that God raised up. They're military leaders that God uses to bring restoration to the people of Israel. And this cycle happens over and over and over and over again. There are 16 judges in total. The first one was Joshua. The last one is Samuel, who we're going to hear from. In 1 Samuel chapter 4... Israel is attacked by the Philistines. The Philistines, you've probably heard of before. Goliath was a Philistine, uh, probably the most famous Philistine. The Philistines were an immigrant military group from Crete. They're most widely known for the production of iron. Okay, so we're not talking about desert sand people who are living in tents all the time and have little to nothing. Okay, they are very skilled. They are formidable foes. They have shields. They have helmets. They have spears. They have swords. They have chariots. Okay, these are, are not um, your average army in Israel's day. They come and they attack. So that leads us to believe that they are in the catastrophe phase. They have already denied God, and now they are entering the catastrophe phase. The Philistines come in and attack Israel, killing 4,000 people, at least. As if the Bible says 4,000 men. Uh, we don't even know about the women and children. So the elders of Israel see what's happening. They have seen the trend 15 other times, and they decide, okay, God's not with us. And they're right. <laughs> 
God is against them at this point. What they do next is interesting. They don't decide to repent and they don't decide to seek God. They think instead, um, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God was believed to dwell. It also had the law of Moses in there, amongst other things. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to take it back into battle. And surely we will be victorious if we can just bring the ark with us, okay? So they're, they're treating it sort of like a good luck charm, like a rabbit foot that they're bringing into this war. And um, what you probably would imagine could happen does. The Philistines completely destroy them. They kill 30,000 more people. And uh, Israel is sent running with their tail tucked between their legs and the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. A messenger is sent from um, the battlefield to Eli, who is the high priest, and let him know that uh, both of his sons are dead and that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And the Bible says that once he finds out that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, that he falls over to the ground, breaks his neck, and dies. That's how serious of a situation we're in. While the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant, they set it up in front of one of their false gods. Um, they call him Dagon. He, uh, and the Bible says that they, they set the Ark of the Covenant up in front of Dagon, and the next day they come in to the same room where they put the Ark of the Covenant and that the, the figurine, the statue of Dagon is lying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they think, okay, well, that's kind of weird. They set him back up, which is a sermon in itself. If, if, you, have, if you have things you worship that you have to prop up on your own, it's not worth serving. That's... that's that's no kind of God to serve. So they prop him back up. They leave. They come back the next day. Not only is he on the floor, his head has been broken off. Both of his arms have been broken off. Guys, God can handle himself. Not only that, not only is their, um, their false God destroyed, but the leaders of the Philistines develop uh, tumors, and then there's a plague of mice that run through the, the camp. And so they finally figure out, okay, uh, we got to send this thing back. And so 1 Samuel 6, chapter 6, the diviners of the Philistines say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? That blows me away. That the pagan Philistines have a higher view of God than the people of Israel do. Let that sink in. So they send it back. And then here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. It says, And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim 
a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So they get the ark back. It's supposed to go in the tabernacle, but they don't put it in the tabernacle. I guess they weren't satisfied with how their good luck charm worked. And so they don't put it back where it's supposed to go. They put it in the house of, of Abinadab. Furthermore, they kind of forget about it. And it's left there for 20 years. Their city is in ruins. Their army is defeated. And they're under Philistine domination. Let's pick it up in, chap in uh, chapter 7, verse 3. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Samuel calls the people to repent. But it's got to be in a very specific way. And so this is the first point. If you're filling in the blanks on your outline, this is the first one. It says the repentance had to be inward and outward. He starts, if you are returning with the Lord with all your heart, it has to start from the heart. It has to start inward. And then it moves outward. He says, then put away the foreign gods. The inward is more important. Return with all your heart. Then put away the foreign gods. How often we try and reverse the order. How often we try and work on the outside. I'm just going to do this. I'm going I'm to read my Bible every day. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I am going to stop saying those things. I'm going to stop thinking about these things. And we... We work on the outside so much without dealing with the heart, without dealing with what caused the problem in the first place so that we develop either a sense of self-righteousness or we finally drop the ball again and 20 years later, we're struggling with the same old demons. Samuel says... Repentance has to be inward, then outward. But here's the problem. Israel didn't feel like they had rejected the Lord. And this is the second point. They felt like they had added the worship of other gods to their worship of the Lord. They didn't think they had forsaken him altogether. They just helped him out a little bit. They felt like somehow they were compatible, like somehow they complemented one another. And we do that too. We tend to compartmentalize our life. Uh, I certainly do to an extent. I'll become very busy. I'll, I'll pack my schedule so full that, okay, I have this much time to spend with the Lord. I have this much time to pray, but I have this much time for work and I have this much time we do that. So, okay, God, you can have 9.30 to 12 on Sundays. That's good. Um, Monday is going to be work. Monday evening, professional football. During the day, Tuesday through Friday, you know, that's, that's work too. In the evenings, maybe family if I get home before they're in bed. Saturday, college football. And then we're back to Sunday. 
and we prioritize our life like that, we say, oh, yeah, absolutely, God is number one. Number one is God, number two is family, number three is friends, number four is work, number five is hobbies, whatever, whatever order it is for you. The problem is God looks at that and he says, listen, I don't want to just be a priority for you. I want to be everything to you. We treat God like he's ketchup or something. We'll squirt a little on if he pairs well with whatever we're having that day. And Samuel comes to them and he says, the foreign gods, they're not, they're not compatible. In fact, they're mutually exclusive. They're like oil and water. You cannot mix them together. He says in verse 3, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. See, Israel is in double bondage right here. They're under the oppression of the Philistines and they're also under the oppression of their own sin. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you're probably familiar with the name Baal or the name Ashtaroth. It's one of the more common ones. They are Canaanite gods. Baal is the Canaanite god of the weather, which is a little difficult, I think, for us to understand in the modern age because we think of weather. We think, okay, rain, sunshine, cloudy, forecast, weather on the eights. For the Israelites or the Philistines, who live in an agrarian society, the God of the weather is, does not mean just forecast. If your livelihood depends on the growth of your crops and what you can barter and buy and sell with, we could, we could more accurately translate this to wealth, money, prosperity. And then Ashtaroth, is, is the Canaanite god of fertility. So it's easy to look back and say, okay, they worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and we imagine these little figurines made of gold or something that we may have seen in the Smithsonian or wherever. But really, modern context, they're worshiping money and sex. Money and sex. So Samuel, in chapter 7, verse 5, says, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So Samuel calls the nation to repent. Samuel cries out to God. And then Israel expresses repentance by putting away the bad and pursuing the good. They do some certain things. They take water, they pour it out, symbolic of them emptying themselves, saying nothing is left. We are completely empty before the Lord. And then they fast, which leads us to our next point. Is that from their example, we see that the experience of conviction of sin really proves nothing. 
Just because you feel bad about something doesn't mean that you're repentant. The experience of conviction of sin proves nothing. It is our response to conviction that demonstrates repentance. There has to be an action attached. Not only did they pour out the water, not only did they fast, but then they confess. And they say, we have sinned against the Lord. Then in verse 7 it says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the Philistines are looking on in this. They see Israel confessing. They see Israel fasting. They see them weeping over their sin, pouring out the water. And the Philistines think, this is our opportunity. Because they mistake humility for weakness. And so they're going to they're going to take their shot. They got them in the crosshairs. But it says at the end of verse 7, when the people of Israel heard of it, heard of the Philistines that is, they were afraid of the Philistines. Sadly, Israel still didn't have much more understanding than they did before. Their confidence is dashed. But here's the good news, is that often moments of greatest testing precede the moments of greatest victory. Moses came to the Red Sea and saw the approaching army before the waters parted. Jesus, even, before he began his earthly ministry, was tempted by the devil in the desert. So Israel is now on the cusp of war again with the Philistines. And the stage is set. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. The first time around when they were faced against the Philistines, they said, Okay, let's get our good luck charm. Let's go into battle. Surely this is going to help us. We're golden. This time they know better. And instead of getting their good luck charm, they plead with Samuel, please cry out to God for us. Please, please do not stop praying for us. And so the next fill in the blank for you is, though the battle has yet to be fought and the enemy is at hand, the war is won. This is what we see here. And then the last line of verse 9, and the Lord answered him. They're not crying out to a God who's ignoring them or who is absent. He hears and he answers. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. God comes and he fights from heaven. The funny thing, I think, is that both Israel and the Philistines hear the same thunder. It's not like just the Philistines heard it and they got confused. They both heard the thunder of God. They both heard the voice of God. But it caused confusion for the Philistines and it caused courage for Israel. The presence of God brings confusion to his enemies, but confidence to his people. And so Samuel takes a rock and he calls it Ebenezer, which is a Hebrew term. It means stone of help or rock of help. And he sets it up as a landmark and says, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Sang this hymn growing up called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The second verse says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Growing up, I had no clue what that meant. What in the world is an Ebenezer? The only thing I could think of was Ebenezer Scrooge, and I was pretty sure that wasn't right. (laughs) Samuel sets up his stone of help. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. The battle was the Lord. I like how he says, thus far, the Lord has helped us. It's not the final victory, but it is a pledge of future help. Homecoming Sunday can be a lot like that. We can think back about all the things that God has done here, all that he's taught us through the years, through his word, the connections that we've made, the relationships that we've built, the people even that we've sent out into the ministry, uh, the people that we've helped in the food pantry, Um, the benevolence ministry, the mission trips that we've taken. And we can look back and we can say, thus far the Lord has helped us. But to to retain a healthy perspective, we we can't stop it there. We use it as a pledge for the future. Thus far the Lord has helped us, and he's got a lot more in store, and we can't wait for it. And so what about you? If you take inventory of your life, how many rocks do you have set up? How many landmarks do you have set up? How many memories do you have of what God has done? Because if you're anything like me, you've set up a few in the wrong place or for the wrong things. I have that memory of my coach saying, well, that was a waste. And here... 15 years later, 
longer than that. I still remember it like it was yesterday. <clears throat> when I was eight, we were at a 4th of July party, and a bottle rocket misfired and shot off to the side. It hit me right here in the leg. I still have the scar from that firework. And those words from my coach ring in my head just as clearly as this scar remains on my leg. One of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to spoil it for you, but I don't feel bad because it was made 25 years ago. Okay? If you haven't seen it by now, you're not going to. Okay? <laughs> Forrest, it, it opens with Forrest sitting on a bus stop bench, and he's just telling his story to whoever would hear it. He's a man of uh, less intelligence, but what he lacks in intelligence, he makes up for in presence um, and in personality. He witnesses some incredibly historic events. He witnesses Elvis, the Vietnam War. He sees segregation firsthand. He witnesses the fall of a sitting U.S. president. Um, and, but at a young age, his peers did not see him as equal. Uh, mainly because of his lack of intelligence and because of some braces that he wore, had to wear on his legs in order to walk. But one day, while he's on the bus, he meets Jenny. And Jenny is welcoming, and she is warm, and she is honest. And from that point on, Forrest is smitten with her. And we see the two grow to become adults, and throughout Forrest's story, Jenny weaves in and out throughout the entire movie. Jenny winds up with a completely different journey, uh, whereas forests are marked with these important historical events. Jenny's story is marked with drug abuse and rebellion and sexual exploration and more. And so late in the film, they come together again. Uh, the decades have impacted them startlingly different. Uh, Forrest has newfound wealth that he's either unaware of or indifferent to. Meanwhile, Jenny is just struggling to make ends meet, keeping her job as a waitress. So they're taking a walk behind Forrest's house, and they end up in a very familiar spot, and this is what happens.
They come to this old, dilapidated home of Jenny's childhood, and she's flooded with memories. And Forrest is unaware of her history, and he's shocked and confused because he doesn't realize that this little girl was abused by her widower father. And when she is faced with these rocks that she's set up along the way, and she sees the house of her childhood, they're not good memories. This is the place where the real demons of her past live. This morning you had one of these, a small rock in your seat, and we have a choice. Too many of us have set up monuments in the wrong place. Too many of us have rocks that represent bad experiences in our life and not enough good ones where we've acknowledged the work that God has done for us. And so I'm going to ask you to do one of two things with this. The team is going to lead us into one final song for the morning. And if you're one of those people who has a rock that has been weighing you down, I want you to get up out of your seat during the song and place it on the edge of the stage. Symbolizing your trust that God will carry this burden for you. It doesn't mean that you'll never think about it again. It doesn't mean that that moment in your life never happened, okay? These aren't magic rocks. It does mean that he has been with you thus far. And you are acknowledging that. Let God carry the weight of that rock in your life. You are not strong enough to do it yourself. Others of you need to take it home. You don't need to put it down. You need to take it home. You need to put it somewhere where you see it often. Maybe put it in your pocket, like Dad was saying with the kids. Put it somewhere where you are constantly reminded of that thing that God has done for you. So you can look back in remembrance and you can see the stone of help. You can see the rock of help. You can see your Ebenezer. It's important it's a small thing, but it's so important. It's so important because you're three times as likely to click on that negative post than you are on the positive one. It's so important because it takes at least five positive experiences to equal out one negative experience. It's so important because just like Come Now Fount also says, we know our hearts and they're prone to wonder prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's important because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's important because the price of that sin is death. It's important because God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got it all put together. He didn't wait until we worked on the outside so much that hopefully it's made an impact on the inside. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has been with us. And he'll be there for you again and again and again and again and again. Will you pray with me? God, you are a helper. You are a defender. You are a mighty warrior on our behalf. And we come together acknowledging that, trusting in that. And we want to say thank you. God, our circumstances do not dictate your character. When we face changes in life and they send us in a tailspin, you are not surprised. You are not caught off guard. You are prepared. And so we cling to Samuel's declaration, till now the Lord has helped us and you will do it again. God, give us eyes to see the ways you are at work. Help us to see your hand. And when we do, stir in our hearts to respond rather than going about our business as if nothing had ever happened. For those here who've built landmarks to past pain and heartache, we cling to the promise of Jesus that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Father, I pray your freedom over their lives today. And I pray that that weight would be lifted so distinctly and so suddenly that it brings a breath of fresh air into their lungs. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.